Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report, KHSU's weekly program covering environmental issues that matter most on the North Coast and in our bioregion. I'm your host this week, Jennifer Kalt, Director of Humboldt Baykeeper. Today, my guest is Jennifer Savage, California Policy Manager for the Surfrider Foundation. Welcome to the Eco News Report, Jen. Hi, thanks, Jen. Thanks so much for being here. So before we get into talking about coastal issues with Jen, I want to make an announcement that this Sunday and Monday, January 20th and 21st, are the highest king tides of the winter. It's very well, exciting. Well, that's what's projected anyway. When the tides are predicted, they don't always exactly meet the predictions, but depending on whether it's stormy, rains a lot, low atmospheric pressure, especially if there's a lot of wind coming in from the northwest, mm-hmm. there could be even higher tides, but they're predicted to be about 8.7 feet at the north spit tide gauge this Sunday and Monday. And the city of Arcata is looking for people to help photo document water levels at 15 locations in Arcata. And they have a website that you can go upload the photos. You can see what times the high tides are in Arcata. They're around 11 on Sunday and around noon on Monday. The city is also interested in other sites, but they've put stakes out at the 15 photo monitoring sites. They're most particularly interested in documenting from year to year. So if you're interested in doing that, you can go to the Baykeeper website and we'll have the information there or also the KHSU archives when I post this show, I will include the links to the city's website on that. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's really such an interesting glimpse into what will be like the normal tide in the not too distant future. It seems so extreme. I I know I was here in December for the last king tide of last year. And just driving from Manila, where I live, into Arcata, and how much of Mad River Slough was was water. And just, you know, usually there's like the part right before the bridge and the part with the bridge. And it was just all together. It was really very noticeable. And there'll be a point where that's just what it looks like all the time. Right. And it comes pretty close to Highway 255 during the King Tides. It has. In fact, in years past, when we've had big storms with big significant swells, it's flooded onto the highway. So that didn't happen last year, but it has happened in the past. And And it might happen this weekend, too. Very possible. Or Monday. Yeah. In other news, the Humboldt Bay Trail has been funded, the remaining four miles in between the city's jurisdictions. So the county section of the Bay Trail is funded and will be built sometime in, I think, in about two years once they get all the permitting through. And several people have asked, well, what about the high tides? But, you know, really... When the new trail is underwater, we're also going to have to be worrying about 101 (laughs) being underwater. So in the meantime, we can use that beautiful new trail and people will finally be able to safely bicycle between our two biggest cities in the county. That is amazing. And, you know, I have walked both the northern section and the southern section with you and appreciated the bay from multiple directions. And it's so incredible without the billboards, too. There's only four billboards (laughs) left. If people recall, back in 2013, the Coastal Commission told Caltrans, if you're going to build an interchange at Indianola Cutoff, you have to remove all the billboards Mm -hmm. and build the Bay Trail. So we've made a huge amount of headway since then, thanks to the Coastal Commission and all the advocacy of the community demanding that we want the trail and we want the billboards removed. It seems like such a no-brainer. Like, let's make things prettier and more accessible. And yet, 
so complicated? It was very complicated. We worked for years and years, you know, before Baykeeper was formed. Other people worked for Mm -hmm. many more years. And really the roadblock was Caltrans because a lot of people don't realize Caltrans actually permits billboards. They would just keep renewing the permits every year, even though they were on Humboldt National Wildlife Refuge land or North Coast Rail Authority land, and they weren't even paying for the rent anymore. You know, they just predate all these permitting rules. And Caltrans was the real roadblock. So having the Coastal Commission tell them they must remove the billboards, it just happened in a snap. Very helpful. 14 billboards gone in two years. That's really, it is amazing. Like when I think about driving that stretch with all those billboards and how obtrusive it was and how tiresome it was and just always being aware of that what could be a beautiful view was being blocked and made less appealing than it could have been and distracting and now it's just such a pretty drive it's incredible going to be a really beautiful bike ride yep it is it is so you speaking of the coastal commission that is a huge part of your job at Surfrider foundation yes i sort of live and breathe the coastal commission (laughs) so it's not a life for everyone but i enjoy it and it's definitely very interesting to see decisions get made that have you know, real impacts out there in the world. As anyone, if you know, you know, Jen and anybody who attends public meetings regularly who has the stomach for it knows that as, you know, boring and wonky as it can be at times, it actually gets to be pretty exciting and interesting because that is where the decisions that affect us every day happen. I'm not going to say I love every second of sitting in a long Coastal Commission meeting, but I, I love it really. And I love that the public has a chance to influence it you know, these decisions that matter so much. So you basically go to almost every Coastal Commission hearing, right? And they're all over the state. They only meet here on the North Coast once a year. And sometimes that could be in Fort Bragg or in Crescent City. Mm -hmm. Yes. So last year it was in Fort Bragg. But so I go to almost all of them. Every so often somebody else will cover one, especially if it's in San Diego, because Surfrider is headquartered down in San Clemente. So we have a lot of staff down there. Yeah, generally, I think I went to 10 out of 11 last year. And it's not that painful because they're typically on the coast. I mean, I got to go to Fort Bragg for three days. And yes, I went to Coastal Commission meetings, but I also went to McCarricker and I went to the waterfall in Russian Gulch Wilderness. And so it's a good balance of seeing the work that gets done and then going out and enjoying the nature that we're trying to make sure is accessible and protected for everyone. And the Coastal Commissioners themselves change based on, for example, Ryan Sundberg just lost his re-election to the County Board of Supervisors and he was on the Coastal Commission because he held that supervisor's seat. His term will expire in February, 60 days after he steps down as supervisor. For people who aren't familiar, and I still find this confusing, I had to bring notes in just to make sure I didn't (laughs) mess it up. There's 12 members who make up the Coastal Commission. Six of them are public members, so they could be anybody, you, me, Fred, Joe, anybody. But the other six are local elected officials who come from six specific coastal districts. And all those members are appointed either by the governor or the Senate Rules Committee or the Speaker of the Assembly, and each of those appoint two public and two elected. But to back up to the electeds, we have the North Coast is where we are, and so we always have a representative on the Coastal Commission and has to be an elected official. So it can be city council, county supervisor, currently, including Ryan Sundberg, there's three county supervisors and three city council members making up the elected portion of the Coastal Commission. But 
if you're no longer an elected official, then you can no longer serve on the commission. The North Coast should have a new commissioner within as soon as probably, I think with everything that the fastest the turnaround could be would probably be about 60 days. Because we have, of course, a new governor now, too. Right. Yeah. Governor Gavin Newsom. So how much turnover in the whole Coastal Commission do you think there will be in 2019? So there's four commissioners appointed by the governor, two elected, and then two public. So, and they all serve, well, assuming they stay elected at the will of the governor. Technically, he could appoint four new people. I don't think he probably will because, well, one's relatively new. There's not like, there's not a compelling reason for them Mm -hmm. to be replaced. Who knows? I mean, I would hate to predict anything in politics <laughs> too definitively. <laughs> well, but. when you have a Democratic governor outgoing and a Democratic right. governor incoming, oftentimes exactly. they keep the, the appointees from right. the previous governor. Yes, exactly. And so so there's no compelling reason to remove those commissioners. Um, the Coastal Commission's actually doing a pretty great job right now. We, being Surfrider and a number of other environmental organizations, run a project called Act Coastal. And we do these report cards every year where we evaluate how well the Coastal Commissioners vote in accordance with the Coastal Act, which is to say, are they voting in favor of conservation? Are they voting in favor of public access? A few years ago, frankly, the Coastal Commission was in very bad shape. You know, the overall score of the Coastal Commission was very poor. But we've had a lot of turnover the past couple of years. We've had a lot of great new commissioners appointed. This year, I haven't seen the final calculations, but I think the overall percentage is like 80% for the commission. Hmm. So it's quite improved. At least people who want to protect the coast are pretty happy right now. Now, I can't speak for those who are have other interests. And how is Ryan Sundberg ranked on the report card? He higher percentage than last year, but he is the lowest ranking as far as being graded by a conservation score. So, hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, it's hard to read the tea leaves about who's mm-hmm. going to apply and who might get appointed, but that will be very exciting to have a new coastal commissioner that will hopefully be more interested in protecting the coast. And, you know, a lot of times that doesn't mean just blocking projects or voting down projects. Oftentimes it means changing the project to protect the environment or to protect coastal access. Yeah, I would say that's what happens more than anything. It's it's pretty unusual for them to just flat out deny a project. The you know, Coastal Commission staff really deserves a lot of kudos because they are like a lot of agencies, you know, historically understaffed and have so many projects that come before them. So they try really hard before the projects get to the Coastal Commission to work with the applicants and say like, okay, this is what you want to do. This is what you actually can do and and try to figure out a path forward. So the majority of the projects that come before the commission either get approved with staff recommendations or with some other modifications, but it's, it's rare for them to just say no. Right. And, you know, a lot of where the frustration comes in is when a county or a city issues a permit that is not consistent with the Coastal Act, and then the Coastal Commission says, well, this is just not going to work because, you know, you're not following the policies that we apply to these types of projects. And one of the big reasons for that is the local coastal programs, which are the planning documents that cities and counties use to process coastal development permits, are incredibly outdated. I believe Arcata, Eureka, and the county Mm -hmm. all have LCPs that date back to the 1980s. 
So this is kind of ancient history in terms of regulations and environmental protections. Right. And there's a huge effort being made by the Coastal Commission to help local jurisdictions get those plans up to date. Because, of course, to hearken back to the King Tide discussion, there's a lot more that we know now that we need to prepare for. And so many jurisdictions are not prepared at all. And frankly, they don't want to be necessarily because it's a tough political issue, especially in places where you have to talk about relocating structures. Or in Southern California, there's a lot of of armoring of the coast, which just kills the beach. It just causes the beach to erode that much faster. Fortunately, we don't have that problem up here Hopefully we won't. But the studies that came out last year showed that up to 60% of Southern California beaches will be gone in the next 80 years, like completely gone. And that's without doing more armorings. But there's a huge battle between people who own coastal property who understandably want to protect their homes. So they want to put up seawalls or maintain these seawalls. And then it just the public pays the price because the beach goes away even faster. Right, and not to mention the habitat for all the critters that depend on this tiny sliver that's left. Of course. Um, I think something like 12% of the entire coastline in California is already armored. It's crazy. And there's Ingolita Beach down in Santa Barbara that I know a lot of people are familiar with that area. We've been doing presentations about the destruction of the the grunion there because of the the seawall, the revetment that they have there. And it's just heartbreaking. It's like these poor fish have nowhere to go. And they, you know, they don't move around like they stick to their habitat. So if once they lose it, they're out. So is the grunion that fish that run up on the beach yeah. in schools? Or I say run. Right. I know fish don't <laughs> wriggle, run, at least not yeah. these kind. And then people go down to the beach at night and catch them and throw them back in the water. So is that the story with them? Well, you can watch them. Why do they I run up on the beach? They spawn. They spawn on the oh. beach. So they run up on the beach or <laughs> wriggle up on the beach and they spawn and they lay their eggs and then they go back into the ocean. And so so there's the whole thing with the tide and it's particular to, it's tied in, I believe with the moon because of the tide but it's it's like this sort of really romantic thing so it like they don't just spawn all the time they have these very specific events you can go and watch them at night like their little silvery selves but sadly at this beach there's so little sand and they run up and they get stuck in the rocks and then the county down there does beach grooming and they're not supposed to after a grunion run but they've been doing beach grooming like right after and crushing the eggs eggs. yeah it's um i know it's really frustrating sometimes that you think that cities and counties would be doing things the right way and setting better examples. But weirdly, Jen, not always the case. Not always the case. So you're listening to the Eco News Report, and I'm your host, Jen Colt with Baykeeper, and I'm speaking with Jennifer Savage, California surf rider. So there's chapters all over the United States, just on the coastline, I would assume. We do have some Great Lakes chapters, uh-huh. but yeah, otherwise generally on the coast. And we actually have international affiliates too. So there's Surf Rider Japan, there's surf rider chapters in Europe. Somehow I haven't been able to get like an exchange program to go there yet, but I'm working on it. Surf rider <laughs> Australia. And we have 80 chapters in the United States, 20 of which are located here in California. Oh, wow. 20. Yeah. Okay. Surf rider Foundation has staff attorneys and you do amazing work protecting coastal access. And you just had a, a pretty major victory this year. I'm assuming you mean Martin's Beach. Yes. So, yes. Martin's that- Beach. 
Our legal team is incredible, and the team is two women, Angela Howell and Staley Prom, and they not only handle California legal issues, but the entire country, including Puerto Rico. There's stuff that we have going on down there. It is just phenomenal, and we have a whole outside legal team from Martin's Beach as well. So that case, I feel like everybody knows about Martin's Beach, but the quick recap is there's a little crescent beach down just south of Half Moon Bay, and the only way you can access it, because it's a you know little pocket beach with cliffs on either side, is this road that goes down, and it's been used by families for generations, generations, generations. Very popular place for people to have picnics, family reunions, it's sheltered, it's really beautiful, it's sweet. In 2005, I think he bought the property, uh, Vinod Kosla, who is a billionaire who founded Sun Microsystems. And in 2008, he closed the road in violation of the Coastal Act. And also, he was told when he bought the property, like, you have to keep this road open because it's historically been used. You can't just close it. He did. And so the community got very upset. And, and it wasn't just the local, like, Half Moon Bay area people, but, but people from all over California, the Central Valley, even my husband has a a bunch of family in Gustine, which is down by Modesto, and they used to go there all the time. And there's so many stories like that. So it became this really big controversy, and he just kept digging in his heels. And I mean, he's, you know, bottomless pockets. Surfrider went to court because the funny thing is, all he really has to do is apply for a coastal development permit because he's changing the use. Now, the Coastal Commission probably wouldn't allow him to, to close the road, but he's not even willing to do the thing that just any person in California would have to do, apply for a permit. So Surfrider took him to court. We won. He appealed. We won again in the California Supreme Court. Then he tried to take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. And if they had taken it up and we had lost, it could have destroyed the Coastal Act. So that would have been really, really bad. All because one billionaire didn't want to share a beach with people who'd been using it forever and obey the law. But the Supreme Court declined to hear it. So we emerged completely victorious. That is fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. And on behalf of all Californians, <laughs> thank you, Surfrider, for fighting that fight. You know, a lot of people may not realize that coastal access is really what the Coastal Act and the Coastal Commission were voted in by the state of California voters to prioritize because in a lot of places, eastern United States, for example, you can buy the beach and close it off so and crazy. tell people they can't park there or charge money. You know, in Cape Cod in Massachusetts, you have to buy a permit to park anywhere on the road near the ocean. In Oregon, you know, too, the owner of the property can just wall it off and say, no, no beach access. Sorry. So we're very fortunate that so many years ago, the voters of California regarded this as a huge priority. But of course, there are many other aspects of the Coastal Commission and the Coastal Act. And we were talking earlier about the local coastal programs yeah. and the importance of addressing sea level rise, which wasn't a thing when the Coastal Act was adopted and written. Right. And so these old plans from the 1980s that are governing development on our coast don't even consider sea level rise at all. So in the coming year, we actually are expecting local coastal program or LCP updates from Arcata, Eureka, and Humboldt County. We'll see because so far at least Eureka and Arcata have been fairly stubborn in terms of actually mm -hmm. adopting some meaningful policies to address sea level rise. And in Eureka, they want to plan for six inches of Which, sea level rise. Yeah. And just 
for folks who don't, you know, read this stuff all the time, first of all, we know the sea is rising, like that's happening. And we know it's going to rise faster and faster just as the climate's getting, you know, hotter and hotter. And every single report that comes out is more dire. You know, it's, there has never been a report where they're like, oh, it's not going to be as bad as we think it is. It's always, whoa, it's going to be probably a lot worse. And it's rising relative to the land twice as fast here in the Humboldt Bay region because the ground beneath us is sinking at the same rate as sea level is rising. So we have twofold the the relative rate of sea level rise. So it is happening. Yeah. I mean, Humboldt Bay is one of the areas in California most vulnerable to sea level rise. I think about this because I live in Manila, right? Like I'm like, how long before it's an island and not a peninsula anymore? Because with Mad River Slough, the bay, the ocean, like I'm going to start a ferry service pretty soon. (laughs) Well, fortunately for you, Manila and Samoa, the sea level is rising a little bit slower because the ground is not subsiding as quickly as it is in South Bay. Mm -hmm. So Fairhaven, Fields Landing, King Salmon, those areas are sinking at a faster rate. Yeah. But in any case, the city of Eureka's plan is to not really plan. They basically want to kick the can down the road and make it someone else's problem. And that tends to be what happens. People, you know, want to just not make the hard decisions of, for example, saying, okay, well, no new development in areas that we know are going to be underwater. Right. You know, in 50 years. Why add to the problem we already have of trying to, it's called manage retreat, which I think is probably a, a terrible a bad name. term. It's, you know, <laughs> retreat, surrender. But, you know, mm-hmm. let's face it, the ocean's going to win this argument. We're yeah. not going to be able to wall it off. Well, it's either going to be managed retreat or unmanaged retreat. Yes, you know? exactly. But one way or the other, we're going to be retreating. Retreat and disaster. Yeah, there's just so many examples, too, of if you think about all the disasters, you know, hurricanes, fires, all these things that have, have hit our country exceptionally hard in the past few years, you know, sea level rise is on par with that. It's just a slow moving disaster. And we actually have time to plan for it and could avert it. Not the rising, but the reaction to it. Right. We do. We have a lot of vulnerable infrastructure that Mm -hmm. Aldron Laird has done an amazing job compiling all kinds of information, really thinking hard about what is most vulnerable and what do we really need to try to relocate soonest. You know, you can build houses higher up off the ground, but there will come a point where the toilet won't flush The road will be underwater and the electricity will not be delivered to the house and so on and so forth. If the drinking water lines and the sewer lines are under so much water that it's hard to repair them, you know, it seems like we need to start investing in relocating those major pipelines before that happens rather than after. Right. Either that or start stockpiling your food <laughs> and getting your Zodiac ready. <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, it points too to the importance of dune restoration and wetland restoration because those natural buffers are some of the best defense that we have mm-hmm. not to mention like all the creatures like as you said who are vulnerable as well well speaking of coastal development permits there is not really an update on the mercer fraser asphalt plant that was approved by the county for near big lagoon on the old mill site up there We appealed the Coastal Development Permit to the Coastal Commission, and then Mercer Fraser withdrew the application. Mm -hmm. 
Well, no, they didn't really withdraw it. It's kind of a technical, like they waived the requirement that they have to have a hearing in 49 days or whatever the, right. the day limit is. So they waived their right to a speedy hearing is what they did. And we don't know what their plan is next. Could um, you explain to me where geographically, I mean, I know where Big Lagoon is, of course, mm-hmm. but like, where is it in that area? It's just east of the lagoon itself. So okay. there's a creek called Gray Creek that flows into the lagoon or used to flow into the mm-hmm. lagoon, right? And Maple Creek also flows into the lagoon just east of 101. Okay. But in maybe the 1950s or so, a huge log pond was built with a dam that that's like a half a mile long. Wow. And that dammed up all of Gray Creek, which is regarded as a very important coho stream because I've... the water's very cold. Mm-hmm. But it's right now behind this dam, so it's cutting off the entire Gray Creek to coho and cutthroat trout spawning. As you're driving on 101 and you go across the water right. of Big Lagoon and you look to the east, right now you can see, well, last time I was up there, I don't mm-hmm. think they moved it, you can see the top of the asphalt plant okay. sticking up over the trees. So it's behind Lock Gate on Green Diamond property. Mm-hmm. And it used to be a mill that was dismantled in like 2003 or so. Okay. So they, you know, they want to put it on the old mill site. Right. So and clearly like there's really sensitive, important habitat up there of which we have far too little. Yes. Big Lagoon is extremely special and sensitive and very popular for water-based recreation, hunting, fishing, stand-up paddle boarding. I know people who swim there. It's a really important place. And it's too bad we have a highway going through the middle of it as it is. And it's too bad there was a mill built there long, long ago before people thought about these things. But we think about these things now. And so putting an asphalt plant there and calling it temporary, but it's going to be there for 10 years is really not appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) A step backward? Yes. Yeah, step backward. Humboldt County's Planning Commission has been approving a lot of floodplain development that's really inappropriate. And, Do you um, think that will change anytime soon? I sure hope it changes. Yeah. There's going to be a new at-large planning commissioner after this Thursday. Today. Ah, today. Then we will be getting a new planning commissioner for the 5th District that will be appointed by Steve Madrone, who got elected to represent the 5th District. So there's going to be some changes on the planning commission. And yeah, I can only hope that these floodplain developments stop because it's just really poor planning. Absolutely. In so many ways. Yes. Anyway, what else do you want to talk about? (laughs) Well, one thing I just wanted to touch on, I know a lot of people are paying attention to the threat of new offshore oil drilling, which is one of those things that we thought we were done fighting, but turns out we're not. The Trump administration, the Department of Interior had released a proposed plan a while back that basically said, let's open up all U.S. waters to new offshore oil drilling and gas production. Unsurprisingly, people mostly said, we don't like that idea. I mean, this is pretty bipartisan. This isn't even like a Republican versus Democrat thing in in most cases, especially here in California. The next round of the plan is supposed to come out any day, but now with the government shutdown, which is a whole nother thing, (laughs) let's, let's just acknowledge how ridiculous that is. So the plan hasn't come out, but if and when the government ever gets going again, we do expect that it will come out. 
And so on January 8th, House members from districts across the United States introduced a package of legislation that would collectively protect East Coast, West Coast, Eastern Gulf of Mexico, and the Arctic Ocean from new offshore oil and gas development. And it's just the latest in, you know, really a massive wave of bipartisan opposition. Our representative, Congressman Jared Huffman, who is, I would say, a, a good champion of the coast and always has been, you know, really spoke about the science of and the public opposition and the need to protect America's oceans from dangerous offshore drilling. And he introduced the West Coast Ocean Protection Act of 2019 and the Stop Arctic Ocean Drilling Act of 2019. So again, it's a slate of bills that Congress came together to get going in hopes of preventing new offshore oil drilling. Well, now with the government shutdown, we'll just have to wait and see when when this gets going again. We're also waiting for the clean water rule, which will Mm -hmm. weaken the definition in wetlands protection. That's also on hold. Where can people go to get more information about offshore oil drilling and the Act Coastal report card and all these other coastal issues? Sure. Well, you can go to surfrider.org for everything on offshore oil drilling. We have a lot of information there. And Act Coastal, just like it sounds, actcoastal.org for all of your Coastal Commission information, including monthly reports about items of interest and how commissioners voted, as well as the annual report card. So the annual report card will be out soon. Yeah, I think the official version will be out by mid-February at the latest. Uh I did hear recently that Shelley Luce of Heal the Bay got appointed to be an alternate. Yeah. Which is very exciting. She's fantastic. That is. Very science-minded person. Yeah, Yeah. it is really fantastic. And then Sarah Amazada, who is former director of California Coastkeeper, is a full commissioner, which has had a powerful impact on the Coastal Commission. I mean, like most elected bodies, it's... Whichever extreme you have sort of pulls the commission that whole way or that direction. And so having somebody who's such a staunch environmental advocate, along with other commissioners who are similarly inclined, I would say is in large part why the commission is approaching things more thoughtfully than perhaps they were for a while. Well, thanks for all your work watchdogging and massaging and all the other things that you do, getting the word out to people, because a lot of times coastal issues in other parts of California are very important to us here locally, whether we know about them or not. It's, it's true. And yeah, well, thank you for all that you do, of course, because, you know, I was somebody who worked sort of on the ground for a long time, and now I'm not doing the grassroots as much, but it makes me appreciate even more the people that are paying attention locally because without that, you would never know what's important and what's not. Oh, and one more thing. I did want to mention that my beloved Humboldt chapter of the Surfrider Foundation is starting this year's Ocean Night series at the Arcata Theater Lounge. This month, they are screening Mission Blue, which is a documentary that follows the legendary oceanographer, marine biologist, environmentalist, and National Geographic explorer-in-residence Sylvia Earle, who is amazing, and her campaign to create a global network of protected marine sanctuaries, or as she calls them, hope spots, which is so nice. Tonight at the Arcade Theater Lounge, doors open at 6.30, and it's also a great ocean night to attend if you're looking for more opportunities to get involved. They will be announcing new committees to tackle surfrider projects, and you can find out more tonight at the ATL, doors at 6.30, film start at 7 o'clock. And what a great film for the big screen. Yes, yes. 
Well, thanks, Jen, and thanks so much for being on the Eco News Report today. Thanks for having me. This has been the Eco News Report. My name is Jennifer Kalt of Humboldt Baykeeper, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I was speaking with Jennifer Savage, California Policy Manager for Surfrider Foundation. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to the KHSU Archives page, or you can download the podcast. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks, as always, to Fred McLaughlin for engineering. Join us again next week for the Eco News Report.